Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the story of a blind man that is healed by Jesus. And honestly, the placement of yet one more healing in the context of Mark chapter 8 seems a little bit odd to me at first. But as we explore what this chapter is talking about, actually this man is a living parable for all of us. All of us deal with spiritual blindness. All of us need divine intervention for God to step into our lives and open our eyes to see what's going on and understand it. And so the the more we look at this, it's not actually at all random. It is very intentional. So if you go back to uh, Mark chapter eight, you see that Jesus on the boat makes this statement to his disciples and he says to them, you have eyes but you don't see and ears, but you do not hear. He talks to the disciples and he says, you know what? They, the disciples, have an element of spiritual blindness that is a problem. And Jesus continues to work through all of those things. Um, I never get tired of reading about how Jesus heals people. And this is the healing of this blind man. You know, when you hear the word healing, what do you think about? What kind of healing do you need? I mean, first of all, we, we would think about physical illness, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, I wanna just tell you that I, I celebrate the goodness of God because um, it was five years ago on Friday that I came through open heart surgery, and I'm still alive, and that was not assumed. You know, I'm, thank you, thank you. Many of you prayed for me. And I wanna thank you for praying for me when I was sick. And when you're sick, we wanna pray for you if you'll let us know. Because we believe that God is involved in healing. He heals, it's amazing. I look out at some of you, you've got stories to tell. He's about healing, physical healing. He's also about other kinds of healing. For instance, sometimes the healing that we need is healing in the area of our thoughts and emotions. I talk to people often who struggle with anxiety or depression. They live in a darkness that is a little bit hard to understand or even describe. And they long to be free. I mean, sometimes it's emotional hurts that came because someone wounded you and it ties you up and keeps coming back and you long to be healed from that emotional wound. And it's a a painful thing. All of us have experienced the woundedness that comes when relationships break down in the middle of conflict. And you just think about, wow, I just remember when it wasn't like this. I I wish we could put all the pieces back together and I wish we could enjoy the peace that we used to have. And and our, our hearts long for that restoration. Some of you have experienced that restoration. Some of you are still waiting for that restoration. One of the most powerful hurts that, that comes to people is hurts that are a result of conflict within a church. I hate to bring that up, but one of the most painful things we go through is here we come together as the body of Christ, all who love Jesus, and then, and then we mess up and hurt each other. I, I don't want you to raise your hand. Uh, if you wanna talk to me afterwards, you can. I'd like to tell you that that never happens, but no, 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 the church of Jesus is comprised of people that still have faults and failures and weaknesses and react and say the wrong things at the wrong time and 
And, and that, can, that can create a deep and lasting wound and stop people from coming to church. And I get it. You know, I'm a pastor. I've been hurt by people in the church, just like everybody else. But you know what? Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. It is not possible for us to move forward in our lives and, and omit or disregard the way God would use church to strengthen us and help us. And it's necessary to trust again and try again and to forgive again. And as much as all of the bad things that can come out of churches, I'm telling you what, Jesus owns the church and he brings a lot of great stuff out of his church in spite of the fact that everyone participating is imperfect and flawed. But sometimes we, we need healing in that area. One of my favorite passages to describe sweet fellowship, which is our goal always, is Psalm 133. And, and this is sort of like a, a beautiful picture of unity and sweet fellowship um, it goes like this, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Boy, amen to that, right? Remember in your family before everybody got mad at everybody, you know, and it was sweet and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down into uh, uh, running down on Aaron's beard and upon the collar of his robe. And so the anointing oil that goes from the head down into the beard and then into the garment, is, it's like that's that unifying anointing oil that is a gift of God that enables us to live together in unity. Well, today the story of healing is unique in that it's only recorded in the, in the Gospel of Mark. It's also unique because um, most of the time when Jesus heals, that's, especially the ones that's recorded, Jesus heals and people are instantly healed. I mean, Jesus touches the hand of the mother of Peter and she gets up and cooks dinner. I mean, the woman with an issue of blood touches the hem of his garment and immediately she is healed. Uh, when, when Jesus heals the, the lame man, he, he commands them to stand up. And so there's this sense that when, when God is at work, it should be instantaneous and, and complete. And then all of a sudden we get the story of a man who is blind and Jesus kind of has to make two passes at the man. And that's what we're gonna look at. You know, it, it kind of talks about the fact that sometimes the process includes a little bit of time and more effort than just instantaneous. So let's read the story in Mark 8, 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Okay, I want you to notice, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch This guy had some committed friends in a community who went and got him and brought him to Jesus. And they begged Jesus, would you please touch him and heal him? Wow, you are, we are blessed when we have friends who are willing to help us. 
So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes um, and, and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. I want to just look at a few things in this specific healing of Jesus. The first one is he had friends that brought him to Jesus and these friends begged Jesus to touch him. You know, one of the things about the church is that we are the friends. And we go find the people that we know and love and, and we bring them here because we're begging Jesus to touch them like he's touched us. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because we love our friends. We've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, a transformation in our heart and minds, new perspective, peace when it didn't used to exist, a hope, an enduring hope of a resurrection that even death can't touch, eternal life, salvation. And, and you know what? We're the friends that should be bringing people who don't have that. Say, hey, come on, let's, let's just come. We talk about stuff like that at church. Well, they, they, they brought this man to Jesus. Now, in the day of Jesus, someone who was blind or had any type of a disability or deformity was looked at much differently than the way we look at them today. And in fact, in John chapter nine, the disciples themselves, when they meet this blind man, ask this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice that the assumption is, if someone has a disability, someone in the pact sinned, either the man or the parents. And, and, and I remember when I was a father of a baby that was born and they said he was gonna have disability, I remember the fleeting thoughts of what did we do wrong? What are you doing to us, God? Why, did, why is this happening? Was there something we could have changed? And, and I remember, you know, it's, it's an emotional time and, you know, we're trying to like find our new equilibrium and I have to admit that it was, there was that painful moment of thinking that surely I'm, I'm defective, we're defective, that's why this has happened. And then I read the story in John chapter nine and Jesus says, no, no, actually, that's not the right question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I can't tell you what a beautiful passage that was to me because all of a sudden it gave me permission to believe that God wasn't mad at me. God wasn't hurting me. God had chosen. And that this baby that I had, he was designed to give God glory and God was gonna use him. I'll never forget when the doctor walked in and boy had a long list of all the worst case scenarios that could happen and boy it scared me to death. 
he'll never do this, he'll never do this, he'll, we don't know if he'll ever be able to do this or that. And boy, by the time that doctor walked out of the room, I felt like I needed to just be scraped up off the floor because I had no hope, didn't know where to go. And, and then I, I read Jesus' words who say to all people like this, hey, I know it's hard and tough and confusing, but this person has been born for the glory of God and to accomplish the work of God. I do know this. Um, when, when, when my, my James finally accepted Christ and then wanted to be baptized, I don't know if some of you remember that, a video was made, and I love how Jesus, James, how James put what Jesus did on the cross. And then he ends it with, Jesus, wash my sins away. He was so excited. And that video has been viewed over 300,000 times. Wow. I think that boy did something. You know, when we understand what this blind man was up against, we also understand that people that had disabilities were not welcome in the synagogue. They were not welcome in the temple. No rabbi would touch them because the press, the, they, they were presuming that something was wrong. And so when these friends got the courage to go get their blind friend, and say, hey, come with us. We want to take you to Jesus and ask him to touch you and heal you. You know what they were saying? We have heard the reputation of this rabbi. For him, there are no untouchables. For him, all are included. So let's go. Second thing that we notice about this passage is that um, this, this blind man, and in the passage we don't know his name, this blind man is not just an experiment. He's not just an opportunity for Jesus to show off his great power. And how do we know that? We, we know that because the first thing that he does is Jesus graciously honors the personhood of this man. They bring him to Jesus. Jesus doesn't do just a quick drive-by tap. All right, you're healed. No, 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 no. Jesus <clears throat> takes him by the hand. And he walks him outside of the village. Jesus spends time with him. Jesus walks and talks and holds on. Because this man can't see. And this was pre-sidewalk days. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Jesus dignifies this man as a person and as an individual. And Jesus is so personable because he holds his hand. 
Now, if holding somebody's hand, that's, that's a personal moment, right? You get what I'm saying? Do you remember when you were in junior high, high school, or maybe college, and you held that person's hand for the first time, and wow, oh, oh my, we held hands. You know what I'm saying? Now, one thing I love about American culture is this, that <clears throat> when men hold hands, it's very short. We call it handshake. Shake, release. It's wonderful. I love that. Now, I've been in some cultures where it's not so much shake and release. I, I, I've been in some places where it's like they're holding my hand. And I think to myself, wow, it's been two minutes. He's still holding my hand. Oh, we're walking now and he's holding my hand. Oh, my goodness. I'd, I'd be very willing to release, but I don't want to be rude. And I appreciate his gracious hospitality. Okay. But here is a rabbi of Jesus' stature who was willing to invest in that relationship. And he holds his hand and he walks him out and he honors him as a person who matters. He dignifies him. I mean, he, 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 he will not be like everybody else who overlooks him and marginalizes him and he just is a person with a diagnosis. No, no, no. This is a person who is worthy of the attention of Jesus. Now you might be here today feeling that, you know, God knows all about your, your past failures and sins. He even knows your failures and sins that you committed this week. You know what I notice? When I have a bad day, a bad attitude, say some things I shouldn't have said, <clears throat> and, and I go to pray, I'm like, I hate to do that now. I don't know if God's going to want to hear from me. I've, I've messed up. You know the beautiful thing about this story is it informs us that Jesus still moves toward us with love and compassion. The whole coming of Jesus to this world is the story of God who so loved the world that he sent his son. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus went to a cross. Jesus was clear that no one could take his life from him. Did you know no one could... could Force Jesus to die? Jesus talks about that. He says, you know, I actually, no, nobody can take my life. I mean, you think about that. He is God in the flesh. There is no ruler, power, or anything big enough to force Jesus to die against his will. But Jesus willingly, he says, lays down his life because no greater love has this than a man would give his life for his friends. And I'm giving my life for you. When, when Jesus was being arrested, one of the disciples grabs a sword from the accompanying soldiers and, and he starts whacking people, cuts off the high priest's ear. And Jesus, it was Peter, he says, Peter, stop. Don't you know that I could at any moment ask the Father, he would send thousands and thousands of angels to protect me and prevent this. 
Jesus had come to die. Jesus comes to us in our ugliness and failure because he loves us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that we will still sin, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, talks about where Jesus is now. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Anybody here got some weaknesses? You might as well admit it, because the Bible just said we do. But in, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus honors this man and comes to him. Third, Jesus heals this man, but he heals this man over time. It's not instantaneous. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town. He, he, had, he had spit uh, when he had spit on his eyes, I'm sure that was sort of a wake-up call for a blind man. Bam! How am I going to heal you? Come close. Pfft, I'm spitting it. That isn't even dignified, right? How does that even have a place to be spoken about in a church setting? Well, it's in the Bible, so I'm going to tell you. We're talking about it. He spits in his eyes. And then he asks him if he saw anything. Now, honestly, you have the Son of God in front of you who is supposed to have just healed you, and you open your eyes, and you're like, man, he didn't do a very good job, but I don't know if I want to tell him that it didn't work. You know what I'm saying? But what does a man do? He looks up, and he says, well, I see men like trees walking. I mean, I see something, but it's not clear. I mean, this man wasn't implying that Jesus did a bad job. This man answered the question. And you know, if Jesus comes to you today and asks you, how are you doing? Are you gonna tell him the truth? Well, I'm doing good in some areas, but in some areas of my life, I'm not doing very good, Jesus. I'm still sad. I'm still depressed. I'm still struggling. I, you might as well tell him. So then Jesus second time puts his hand on the man's eyes and in that moment he looks up and he can see things clearly. It wasn't instantaneous. It was a process. And that is a frustrating reality. I thought for sure by the time I got to the age I am now, I'd be a much better man than I am. I, I, you know, just full disclosure, I, I used to see Dr. David Cavan, who was the pastor when I was in, in, in college, and I thought, man, I can't wait for the day when I reach his stature, and, and I'm, I'm, all go, I'm all good. It's kind of like you receive the rank of general, and once you receive it, you're there, and it, nothing's gonna go backwards, and, and, and I, I I look now back at Dr. David Cavan, and although he never confessed anything to me, I look at myself and realize, actually, 
I'm still a work in progress. I'm sorry to disappoint you, everyone, but your pastor is a work in progress. I have areas of spiritual blindness. And I see some things, but then other areas I need more healing. Sometimes in the middle of the process, we get disappointed with God. We say, God, why am I still so depressed? Why is it still so dark? Why do I still struggle with this? What's and, and I, I know a lot of people that in their frustration in the process, they walk away from God and they quit trying, they quit seeking. And that's disastrous. Robert Curson wrote an article in the Esquire magazine called Into the Light. And in the article, he wrote about a 45-year-old man by the name of Michael May who miraculously regained his sight. Now, May had been blinded at the age of three and lived 42 years of his life without sight. Then in 1999, he was given the possibility to see again through what was at the time a revolutionary transplant surgery. Prior to May's surgery, there were only about 40 cases of sight restored to patients who had either been born blind or had been blind for most of their life. Most of these patients followed a similar pattern. At first, they experienced euphoria as light rushed into their repaired eyes. They saw color and motion immediately. Everything was new and exciting. It was a miracle. But then frustration set in. This is what actually happens to someone like this. Learning to live with sight involved a huge learning curve. Most of the newly sighted people still couldn't perceive height, distance, depth, or three-dimensional shapes. They couldn't read facial expressions, nor could they distinguish between information that, that was trivial or that mattered. At times, the newly sighted patients felt that they, they belonged neither to the world of those who see or the world of those who can't see. Family members who had expected immediate change were often crushed by the slow transformation. But Michael May's case was different. When the doctors finally removed the surgical bandages from his eyes, just like the other patients, he could perceive space or, or, or see height, distance, depth, three-dimensional shape. He could see the light, but these the, the dimensions, and it was, it was difficult. The moon looked like a street lamp. He couldn't read people's faces, but unlike other patients, he didn't get discouraged by the learning curve. Instead, he approached this new world with an attitude of adventure and childlike wonder. May knew that learning to see again would involve not just one magical operation, but a lifelong quest to learn, grow, take risks, and change. Even as he left the hospital, May peppered his wife with questions. What is this? What is that? Is that a step? Is that a flower? Can I touch that car? He rode the elevator over and over again for the sheer pleasure of finding the hotel lobby after the ride. He played catch with his sons, horribly missing many balls before he finally caught and hung on to one. May struggled. He continued to struggle in his transition to the reality of sight his world often looked like a huge abstract painting. High-speed um, events such as passing of cars and bicycles became frightening. Things often looked very close, frighteningly close. Previous patients had felt discouraged or even depressed by this long, slow transformation to the new reality of sight. But May told himself that this was part of the adventure and the leap wasn't 
leap forward wasn't really a leap at all. If anything uh, was, to, was to happen, he had to keep moving forward. He had to learn and grow and change. And here's the reality of our spiritual walk. The Holy Spirit comes into us. And he begins to transform us day by day. Do you know when sanctification, which is a beautiful old theological term, I mean, fully made into the new person that God wants us to be, you know when sanctification is completed? When you die and go to heaven. Isn't that depressing? It shouldn't be. It should be so encouraging that even though today you may feel sad, frustrated because of some failures and difficulties, that God still is here. He is still at work. He still asks you to put your hand in his, and he'll lead you out. He's never going to get disgusted with you if you keep confessing and asking. Oh, he, he wants us to be more like Jacob who wrestles with God in the Old Testament and will not let him go until God blesses him. That's the kind of tenacity we need in our spiritual life. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable and it begins with the conclusion, man ought always to pray and not to lose heart. We must identify when he asks us, how are we doing? We should tell him, well, I'm doing good here, but boy, right here, I am a mess. But I'm reaching out my hand, and I'm asking you to help me. Would you help me? I'm still spiritually blind, spiritually blind in some areas. So would you, would you open my eyes more fully? Would you teach me how to walk, how to live? You know, the great thing is that the Holy Spirit of God is constantly at work in us. And if in Philippians 1.6, it says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it un, uh, until the day of Christ Jesus. He still is working in us. I think that this, this is actually the only miracle where it seems to be kind of progressive. The man has sight. Jesus asks him a second question. Jesus touches him again, and his sight gets clearer. The good thing as I read this story is that um, God's still working in us. Don't be discouraged, and don't turn loose of him. Keep asking. He's not mad at you. He's not disgusted with you. He's not done with you. No, no, no. He's still here for you. He will help you. You know, there are some things in Scripture that clearly are things that blind us spiritually. Sin blinds us, but confession of sin opens our eyes. Hatred and anger binds us, but forgiveness and compassion and tender mercies open our eyes. Generosity in the discipline of giving opens our eyes. Refusing to give blinds us. Asking the Holy Spirit to increase the fruit of the Spirit 
in us that is transformational is a key. I mean, we need to ask that the fruit of the Spirit be constantly at work in us. We need love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these works of the Holy Spirit take us out of our darkness and open our eyes. What is it going to take? We need to humbly surrender ourselves and be patient and keep seeking. You know, people who are in the dark, they don't change anymore. They don't grow. But people who humble themselves and ask for God to open their eyes, they change. They grow. I've said this to my kids. Um, I kind of am embarrassed to admit this to you because, you know, sometimes I'm not thinking I'm doing so good. But I always tell my kids, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will work on me every day of my life to the point that when you put me in the ground, you will say, you know, Dad was never perfect, but this was the best year we ever had with him. Wouldn't that be great? I'm kinder. I'm more patient. I'm still a work in progress. But I'm begging God to keep working. And I'm going to be like Jacob. I'm going to hold on. You should hold on too. Today we're going to have communion together. And then we're going to have our time of extended prayer. And I'm just saying, you got something in your life you need God's help with, I want you to come. Let us pray with you and for you. You know, one of the things that make our time of of prayer powerful, it's because when you get up and walk forward, it's kind of humbling, isn't it, right? Which is kind of ridiculous. I, I don't know if I want to get up and ask for help. People are going to think there's something wrong with me. Newsflash, they already know. But humbling ourselves and asking one more time for God's help in whatever area that is, that could be it. He's going to be working. So before we go to the time of um, extended time of prayer, Uh, I want you to take the elements of communion and we're going to remember today that Christ shed his blood. His body was broken. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 11, there's a clear passage there that says that before we take communion, we should examine ourselves. What what does that mean? I mean, nobody here is perfect, but if, if we're living in known and like persistent sin that we're not willing to confess or change, then we're not really worthy. And the warning is, don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. How do you get worthy? There's no reason anyone should not take communion today. Number one, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, even right now, we're going to pray together. You can pray and accept Him as your Savior. Maybe you're hearing him, I'm struggling with an area in my life. Confess that to God. Ask him to forgive you. Humble yourself. You know what? You, that would make you worthy. 
You, you think of someone that you need to go and forgive, even in this moment, ask God to give you the strength and then determine to go and do that. But, but you see, in this moment of examination, we, we can do some business with God. And then we, when, we, when we take communion, we proclaim the truth that the shed blood and broken body of Jesus, the Son of God on a cross, he died for us is what rescued us. He rose again the third day and the world has changed forever. I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your heads and, and pray with me. Um, if, if you're here and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, how about right now in this moment, pray and ask him. Let me lead you in prayer. Say, dear God in heaven, I admit that I am a sinful person. I need to be forgiven and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died on a cross to pay for my sin. And he rose again. And Jesus, I ask you to forgive me right now. Save me. And then maybe you're here and you say, God, there's an area in my life I need to confess. So right now I confess it because my heart is to seek your forgiveness and change if you'll help me. So, dear God in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and thank you for the shed blood, the broken body of Christ, for the great sacrifice that you were willing to give so that we could be redeemed and made whole. And we worship you for that today. So, now, I want to encourage you to take the, uh, the little packet here and open up the part that has the bread. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. So let's take the bread out. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Will you stand, please? 